Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. So let me ask you, have you ever had an experience where something didn't turn out as you expected it to? When I was in college, I was, had the privilege of traveling throughout Europe with a couple of professors, and we got to take an art class. So we were going to all the most famous museums all throughout Europe, and our last stop was in Paris. And of course, when you go to Paris, you stop at the Louvre, and of course, at the Louvre, you have the Mona Lisa, which is perhaps the most famous painting in the whole world. And so we were all ready to go the morning we were going to the Louvre, and we show up, and you get to this room, and you stand before the Mona Lisa, and I was a little bit like, oh, Okay. Didn't quite live up to my expectations. In fact, uh, the other paintings in the room were much more interesting to me. Now, who of us haven't had an experience like that? Maybe it was a restaurant that didn't live up to the hype. Maybe it was a vacation that turned out to be a bust. Maybe it was that Netflix series that your friends promised was going to be the best show ever. And you were like, eh, it was okay. We've all had experiences like that, and sometimes those experiences are a little bit more serious. Maybe you had expectations about how your career was going to turn out, and you find yourself being frustrated. Maybe you went into marriage with expectations. None of us ever do that, do we? And you've discovered that some of those expectations can actually lead to disappointment and despair sometimes. Sadly, some people bring expectations into their relationship with Christ and the church and what they expected Christianity was going to be all about. They don't actually experience that. And so that leads them to disappointment and despair. And that's actually the story of the two people we're going to look at together this morning in Luke chapter 24. This is the story of two of Jesus' disciples who are disappointed and troubled by all the events that they had just witnessed in Jerusalem culminating in Jesus being crucified on a cross. That is not what they expected to happen. So what could possibly change their minds about those events? Well, let's find out. If you would, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. And if you don't have your own Bible with you, we carry Bibles in our seats underneath us there. We'd love for you to grab one of those to pull that out and be a first-hander in God's Word with us. You can find this story on page 738 of those black Bibles. And in fact, if you don't own a Bible and you like, you'd like one, we'd love for you to take that with you today as our gift. If you're joining us today and you're not a part of our church, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke in a series called The Life of Christ for well over a year and a half now, but we've come to the last two messages in this series. We come to the end of Luke's account of the life of Christ, and what an ending it is. Truly, the story we're going to look at together this morning is one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It has everything you'd want in a good story. Intrigue, mystery, drama, and yes, even some good old-fashioned humor. And because it is such a great story, I want to read the whole thing together and then kind of come back and unpack what it all means. So have your notes ready because I'm going to invite you to read several of these verses out loud and we have notes so we can be on the same translation. But let's get ready and let's read Luke chapter 24 starting in verse 13. Here we go. 
Now that same day, and this is the day referring to the resurrection of Christ, the two women had gone to the tomb. They had found it empty. They had been, uh, angels appeared to them. They told them that Jesus had risen that same day. That's the day we're talking about here. Two of them, two of Jesus' disciples. Now let me make it clear here. These were not two of the 12, but Jesus had other disciples, and these were two of his disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, and I can't tell you how important it is to have his name there. That's basically like Luke's footnote in a research paper. Like, hey, if you want to know if this actually happened, go ask Cleopas. He's still alive. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, asked Jesus, get the humor here, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Now read verses 20 and 21 out loud on your notes. It says, The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I'll continue. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now read verses 26 and 27 on your notes. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for Luke who researched this diligently, including interviewing Cleopas, so that we could have this story before us today. We pray that we would see what you want us to see, not for ourselves, but for you and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I'm being totally honest with you, I could preach four messages easy on this passage. It's just so full and so rich of so many wonderful things. But as I prayed about it this week, part of our job as pastors is to take a text and preach one message on it. I'm sure you're grateful for that. As I thought about it, here's, here's what I wanted to land on. Here's what I really felt led to speak with you this morning. First, I want to talk about what keeps someone from having open eyes and a burning heart for Jesus. 
What keeps somebody from experiencing that? And then second, because our whole goal in this series in Luke has been this, to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to be like Jesus. The second thing we're going to do at the end of this message is talk about how we can be like Jesus in the way that he shared the resurrection with these two disciples on the road. So that's where we're headed. Let's dig in. As you notice, this story is dripping with humor and irony, isn't it? Part of the fun of this story is that we get to see what spiritual blindness looks like from God's perspective. Now, if you were to really carefully look at this story, you notice there's a dual thing going on here. There's God's part in blindness, and there's our part in blindness, and that's true all throughout Scripture. Only the Holy Spirit of God can open somebody's eyes to who he is. However, as human beings, we have a role to play. And so here's what I want to do. I want to talk about our role when it comes to seeing Jesus for who he really is. So if you're following on your notes there, what keeps someone from having open eyes and burning hearts for Jesus? When it comes to our part, when it comes to our part, I see two things in this text that are still true today. The first reason we may be blind to who Jesus is, if you're on your notes, is because of unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations, like I had with the Mona Lisa. This, by the way, is a theme we have seen all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Even last week, Jesus gathered his disciples together. He's about to go to the cross, and he's explaining to them what greatness in God's kingdom looks like. And they have different expectations, They don't see it the way Jesus sees it. They describe greatness as the way the world describes greatness. So it is here. These two disciples have different expectations. And if you're following on your notes, these disciples had no concept of a suffering Messiah. They had no concept of a suffering Messiah. In fact, let's just separate those two words together. Suffering Messiah. They have no place. You ever heard of an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp? When they hear the word suffering Messiah, that's exactly what they're thinking. A crucified Messiah? This makes no sense. There's no expectation in their mind that they would ever have considered this. When Jesus died on that cross, in fact, in a Jewish person's mind, that immediately disqualified him to be Messiah. Verse 21 really gets to the heart of this. I love it, right? Explaining the situation to the person who actually experienced it, Cleopas declares, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Right there, you see their problem. Those four words, but we had hoped. But we had hoped. So much is contained in that small little phrase. How many times have we said that? How many times have we placed expectations on God and said something like that? But I had hoped that he would come through and heal me. But I had hoped that he would come through and save our marriage. But I had hoped he would provide in this situation. But we had hoped. We had hoped. What's going on there? Expectations expectations of who God is. Now, what did these two hope for? Well, we see it right here. They had hoped that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. That's what their hope was. And what that looked like for them was pretty clear. 
What that looked like is when Jesus rode in on that donkey into Jerusalem, that he was going to kick those Romans out by force. And he was going to set up a military kingdom. He was going to make Israel great again. That was what their expectations of what Messiah did. That's their understanding of Messiah. That's a redeeming Messiah. In other words, Cleopas and his friend hoped that Messiah would change their outward circumstances. If he would just come and change all these outward circumstances, then their lives would run smoothly. Then things would go as they are supposed to go. But we know that Jesus came to free us from a much deeper bondage than Roman slavery. He came to slave us from the bondage that every human being is under at birth, which is sin. That's what he came to redeem. That word redeem in verse 21 only appears this one time in Luke, but it appears over 150 times in the Old Testament. And these two guys knew what it meant. Redeem just means to buy something back. To buy something back. If you're in slavery, it means to buy you back from slavery, to set you free. And so they're thinking, yeah, he's going to redeem us. He's going to set us free from physical slavery. But we know that Jesus had something much bigger in mind here. But his disciples, they could never see this. They could never see this. If you're following on your notes, they needed redemption from spiritual slavery, not physical slavery. Listen, if you've been in Luke, how often have we seen this? How many times does Jesus have to explain it to them? His path is a path of suffering, not a path of glory. Glory comes after suffering. One example is Luke 9, 44. I love this. I mean, he can't be any more clear. Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. And there they are. Just picture them all going, okay, okay. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, that's not how it goes. That's not what Messiah is. That's not what happens to Messiah. I love, too, you know the story of Peter basically rebuking Jesus for saying that. Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Your expectations of who I am are not true. Now, of course, I love that we get to read this text today, don't you? We get to live in the 21st century and go, oh, come on, guys. Clue phone. Can't you see he means something bigger than physical redemption? I mean, we read this today, right? He came to redeem you from something. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? Don't we put expectations on God thinking, if God would just do that thing for me then, like I know what's best for me. And so if God would do this best thing for me, then my life will run smoothly. Then things will go as they're supposed to do. We all place unrealistic expectations on God. What is it you have no place in your belief about God for? What expectations do you put on him? Do you have the expectation that if you're a Christian that you won't go through hardship and suffering? Do you have the expectation that you will never be misunderstood or rejected by other Christians? Do you have the expectation that the world won't believe this message is foolishness at times? Do you have the expectation that changed physical circumstances is going to be the answer to all of life's problems? I'll share with you very honestly, I had an expectation when I came to Christ that I would always feel emotionally connected to him. And then I went through a three-year desert experience, and it, it broke me. 
I had this unrealistic expectation that I was always going to be on the mountaintop. God saw me through that, and his question through that for me was, will you still be faithful even when you don't feel like I'm there? We all bring unrealistic expectations, and those things sometimes keep us blind from seeing Jesus clearly. So let me ask you, if you're on your notes, what unrealistic expectations keep me from seeing Jesus? Like the Jesus who he really is. What unrealistic expectations have I placed on God? The second reason we may be blind to Jesus is because of incomplete knowledge, or I'd rather say this, partial knowledge. Partial knowledge. Incomplete partial knowledge. What do I mean? Well, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they only had a partial understanding of what just happened to Jesus. And partial knowledge often leads to unrealistic expectations. What am I talking about? Listen, make no mistake. These were good Jewish boys. They knew the Old Testament. In fact, they probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. What they didn't know, however, was that the whole Bible was pointing to these events in Jesus' life. All of scripture was pointing to the events that they had just experienced with Jesus on the cross, Jesus in the tomb, Jesus rising again. Jesus' question in verse 26 is poignant. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, you've read the Bible, right? Oh, you have it memorized, right? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And they're like, no. No, what are you talking about? That's not the Bible I'm reading. Now, make, mo- make no mistake. Are these guys right to expect the Messiah to reign in glory? If you read the Old Testament, will the Messiah reign in glory one day? Will he rule over all nations and tongues? Yes, he will sit on a throne and he will rule in glory. And they like that part. They love that. All of the New Old Testament points to this. They believe that, but like the rest of the Jews, like the rest of the disciples, they had fixed their eyes only on partial truth. They knew about the glory, but listen, they disregarded the suffering. They knew about the king, but they didn't know about the sacrifice. They knew about the blessings, but not about the hardships. Do we ever do this with Scripture? Do we ever take parts of the Bible we like and disregard the parts of the Bible we don't like so much because, quite honestly, it doesn't fit with my expectations. It doesn't fit with my lifestyle. I'd say, friends, in all humility, in all gentleness, this is one of the biggest problems in the Western church today. We want to take Scripture and mold it into what we want it to say. Now, let me be the first one to say, I do this all the time. I do this all the time. Some of you know the story of Thomas Jefferson. He took his Bible and he literally cut the parts of the Bible he didn't agree with or he didn't believe out of his Bible. And we go, oh, I can't believe he does that. Well, I kind of do that, although I don't get real scissors. I was thinking about it even uh, this week as I was preparing. Like, we just did a series on Ephesians not too long ago. I love Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. I don't know about you. But it's all about our identity in Christ. It's all about, hey, I'm, a, I'm adopted as his son. I'm in his kingdom. I'm a part of a body. All this good stuff that I am because of Christ. And then Paul gets to chapter 4, and he's like, avoid sexual immorality. 
Don't let gossip come out of your mouths. Don't get drunk on wine. And he goes on and on and on. I'm like, can we go back to chapters one and three? I like that better. So subtly we begin to cut things out that we no longer, quote, believe in or don't fit our lifestyle. We need, as Jesus shows us here, the whole counsel of Scripture, though, if we want to see God for who he really is. If we want to have open eyes and burning hearts. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't allow our knowledge to be incomplete. What does he do with these two disciples? He opens their eyes in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh, I wish verse 28 said, and here's what he said. I wish we had this conversation recorded. I think every preacher does. We, our job would be so much easier. What did Jesus talk about? He showed that all the scripture pointed to him. Well, maybe he talked about all the Old Testament sacrifices as pointing to a greater sacrifice. Maybe he talked about how the tabernacle and the temple were simply foreshadows of the great temple who is Jesus, and now we can be living stones as a part of that temple. Maybe he brought them to Isaiah 53, where 700 years before the events of the crucifixion happened, you can read it yourself. Go home and read it today. Isaiah prophesies about the very things that take place. Maybe he brought them to Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ring a bell? I can't imagine he's standing there with Cleopas, like, remember when I said that on the cross? All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. Oh, I wish how we had that conversation. Some good news I want to share with you is this summer, we're actually going to look at some of the Scriptures that Jesus potentially pointed to showing himself. We could have spent a year on it, but we're going to take 10 Scriptures. And we're going to say, listen, this is Jesus revealed in the Old Testament. So we hope you can join us for that. But we don't know what he said for sure. One thing we do know, if you're on your notes, is he showed them all scripture is God's revelation of the person and work of Jesus. All scripture is God's revelation of the person and work, the work that he accomplished in Jerusalem on that day. It's all one story. It's all about him. Now you're like, okay, I believe that. Well, let's, let's get practical here. What does that mean if that's actually true? It means there's two ways for us to read the Bible. There's two ways for us to read the Bible. There's the way these guys were reading the Bible, and they're the way that Jesus wants us to now read the Bible. There's an incomplete way and a full way. There is a moralistic way. I call it a chicken soup for the soul way. Where the Bible is all about us. That's what these two guys did. They made the Bible all about them. Then there is a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way which makes the Bible all about him. What are you talking about? Let me just give you one example. I could have, I could have chosen any. But let's take the famous story of David and Goliath. Most of us know that story, right? The little, da little boy David kills the giant. And we come to that story, and if we're reading it in the first way, we read that as like a good moral, right? Like the bigger they come, the harder they fall. Or if I can just muster up enough faith, then I too can conquer the giants in my life. And listen, that might be inspiring for a little while, but can I be honest with you? Eventually, that's going to be demoralizing. Because that story's not about you. Sometimes you're going to come up against Goliaths that you can't conquer on your own just by mustering up enough faith. You know what that story's about? 
I gave you a hint. What's all the Bible about? That story's about Jesus. David is Jesus. Jesus standing before an even greater Goliath, which is death itself, and conquering it on our behalf. You know, when David slayed the giant, the entire nation of Israel got to revel in that victory. Do you know when our David conquered the giant? We all stand triumphantly now in Christ for those who believe. That's just one example. Every hero in the Bible is about Jesus. Every king, every priest, every prophet, all pointing to Jesus. It's why Jesus says this to the religious leaders in John 5, such important words. You study the scriptures diligently. That's a good thing. But you think it's because in them you have eternal life. That's making it all about you. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So let me make this simple for you. A a prayer I pray almost every single day for my kids is this. I pray that they will not just know more about the Bible, but they will know the person of whom the Bible is speaking. Every day, that is my prayer. I mean, my son can list off all the answers of all the Bible stories. That's great. But more importantly, does he know the person of whom the Bible is speaking? That is what Jesus wants us to see. Do you have a partial view of the Bible? An incomplete view of the Bible? Or do you see that the whole of the Bible is pointing to him? And it is a gift to us to get to know him better. If you're following on your notes there, the question is this. Is an incomplete knowledge of scripture keeping me blind? Is it keeping me blind to seeing who Jesus really is? He's not just a prophet who did great works, as these two guys say. He is the sum of all of life. And in him, as he says himself, you can find that life. Friends, those two things, again, humanly speaking, are what can keep us from having open eyes and a burning heart for Christ. Where are you with those things? Where are you with those things? Now, originally I was like, okay, I'm going to end the message here. I could have extended it a little bit. But as I was going through this text, I was really struck by one more thing. Some of you, some of us have had our eyes opened. Some of us do have hearts that are burning for Christ. Maybe they're a little bit lukewarm right now. And so I was reading this text from that passage, and I really felt led to kind of dig into it a little more. And something that jumped out at me, it was just the way that Jesus shared about the resurrection with these two individuals. And, of course, as soon as their eyes are open, what do they do? They run back to Jerusalem, and they share it with everybody else. That's kind of the idea. God has left us as his church to continue sharing this amazing message of redemption. And so as we close, I'm going to do this fairly quickly, but this is what I've felt led to do. I, look, I see six ways we can learn from Jesus. Again, if our goal is to be like Jesus— How can we be like Jesus as we go about this world and share the resurrection with others? Are you okay with this? So here's what I'm going to say here. If you're on your notes, we can model the way Jesus shares the resurrection with others. We can do it. And I think before you start going, not another evangelism message. I already feel guilty enough. I think you're going to be just surprised um, just by how how awesome Jesus is, and how we can follow his example even as we leave these doors today, okay? So first, what did Jesus do? Jesus joined them in their activity in context. 
He joined them in their activity and context. Where did Jesus meet them? As they were walking on the road to Emmaus. He didn't meet them at a big event. He didn't call them to a mountaintop. He just met them in their everyday, normal routine. And I think this is good news for us because too often we put so much pressure on sharing Christ with people. We think we have to put a big event on. We think it's got to be with fireworks. But the way of Jesus here teaches us that maybe the best way is just to be aware of the people he has put on our everyday path. We are all walking on a path. We're all walking on a road somewhere. All we really need to do is be aware of the people God has placed on that path with us. In your normal activity, you don't have to do something new. In your normal activity, in your normal context, who are the people God has placed in your path? Will you join them? Will you walk with them? Number two, and I want you to notice because this is huge today. Jesus asked more questions than give answers. At first... Jesus asked more questions than he gave answers. Why is this so huge? Because when I grew up on the church, I was told you had to know these six things, you had to know all this about the truth, and then you like argue people into the kingdom of God. I mean, let's go, let's go argue people into the kingdom of God. Can I tell you something? It never worked. I had all the right answers. I had all the right truth, but I could never argue somebody into the kingdom of God. One of the things I've noticed in Luke again and again is that the way of Jesus is that he never tries to argue people into the kingdom. You know who he argues with? The religious leaders who are keeping people from entering into the kingdom. Instead, what does Jesus do? He usually asks questions. He asks questions of people. Friends, this isn't a ploy or an evangelism tool. You know why Jesus asks questions of people? This is going to be mind-blowing. Because he actually cares for people. You know how a person knows you care for them? When you're interested in their life. Do you know how you get interested in somebody's life? You ask them questions about their life. You don't have to be filled with all of the knowledge of Scripture and get a Ph.D. in the Bible. You just have to genuinely care for the people God has placed in your path. This is such a lost art today in our me-centered world. But we can learn something from Jesus, can't we? We can be like Jesus here. He asked questions. You know he asked 140 questions in scriptures. When people asked him a question, he usually almost always asked a question back. Only two times did he directly answer somebody's question. Why? Because he cares for people. And this is a way we can show we care for people. That leads to the third thing we learn about how Jesus shares the resurrection, which is Jesus honors their spiritual honesty. Notice, Jesus doesn't come in right away. He lets Cleopas explain his confusion, his disillusionment, his shrinking faith, his anger. He doesn't reject him. Nothing will stop the dialogue in a relationship more than bringing the hammer down on someone, right? How dumb could you be? Don't you see? And we step on them, and immediately, it's over. If we don't have that posture of humility, 
Nobody wants to listen to what we have to say. I have John 3 and John 4 on your notes there. Those are two very different encounters Jesus has with people who are far from God. One of them is with Nicodemus, a religious leader. He allows them to have, be spiritually honest with his questions. Born again? What are you talking about? And the other one was with, is with a woman at a well who couldn't be further away from God. And again, he meets her where she is. Nothing will crush dialogue more. Nothing will crush dialogue more than if you don't allow somebody to be honest with where they really are in their faith in Christ. Then, then as the relationship deepens, we move to the fourth thing we learn about the way of Jesus. And that is that Jesus trusts in Scripture to do the talking. Jesus trusts in Scripture to do the talking. Let's just take a deep exhale here. Oh, you mean I don't have to come up with a three-page speech? No, you don't. You have to simply trust in Scripture to speak for itself. Would you read Romans 10, 17 on your notes with me out loud? It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why did Jesus open up the word to these disciples? Because there is power in God's word. There's power in God's word. We see it all through Acts. Whenever you see a sermon in Acts, start paying attention. When Peter gets up and preaches, when Paul gets up and preaches, what do they do? They quote scripture. Again and again, they're, they're just quoting scripture. What does this mean for us? I was driving with a friend this week, and one of the things he and his wife are doing, I just love, is they ask people in their neighborhood who are on their path, already, just people they know, and they say, listen, if you could ask one question of God, what would it be? Write it down on a piece of paper, and they do it. You'd be surprised. They do it. They write the question down, and then they say, okay, we'd love to talk about your questions. Come over to our house for some coffee, for some food, for some dessert, and let's start working through these questions. And then what they say, and this is really important, they'll say something like this, you may not agree with the answers, but at least you know what the Bible says. And they begin to take all those questions and they begin to answer them through what Scripture says. Could we do that? There's all kinds of tools that could help us do that. There's a a curriculum called the Q Place, if you'd like to learn more about that. It's just more natural conversations about spiritual things. But we trust in Scripture to do the talking. Fifth thing we notice here, and this is mysterious, but Jesus doesn't force their belief. Jesus doesn't force their belief. One of the most curious verses in this whole story, I don't know if you spotted it, is verse 28. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. Like, what is going on there? I don't think Jesus was just faking it, going like, hey, you gonna invite me? You gonna invite me for some bread? No. I just think that's how it works. He would have left them had they not asked for him to stay. He would not force himself upon them. He waited for their hospitality, for their invitation, and the same is true today. The same is true today. Though this passage and others make it clear again that only the Holy Spirit can open somebody's eyes, God has given us the most terrifying and greatest gift ever called free will. And every day we have the opportunity to invite Jesus into our lives or to let him pass on to let him pass on. So when it comes to sharing the resurrection with others, it's always good to remember this. Listen, all we do is plant seeds. God provides the growth. Will there be people who you encounter on your path who reject the message of the resurrection? Let me try that again. Will there be people you encounter who want nothing to do with Jesus? Yeah. Should you fret about it? 
Should you worry? Should you never share the resurrection again? No. You simply move on your path, the path that God has already placed you, and you have open eyes to see who God is placing next to you. I'm convinced there is a Cleopas in your life right now. Lastly, the last thing I noticed about the way Jesus shares the resurrection is that open eyes and burning arts often happen in ordinary moments. Ordinary moments. Notice in this story, there's no grand miracle, there's no fireworks, no altar call. Cleopas and his friend have their eyes open when? At a dinner table. They're sharing a meal with Jesus. How ordinary can it get? God does his greatest works in the most ordinary of circumstances. You know what this means? It means you don't have to hype him up. You don't have to create something spectacular for him to show up. He's always present. He's always working. The only question is, will we have eyes to see? And will we join him in his work in this world? Friends, as we close, let me say it again. We really do have the greatest message in the world to share, don't we? It isn't just a message of, hey, we can change your outward circumstances. No, we can change your heart. Because we have a Christ who has come and exceeded our expectations. He has redeemed us from the bondage in which we all face, the bondage of sin which leads to death. Have your eyes been opened? Even now as I'm speaking, is your heart burning to receive that redemption? And I say to you, it can be yours. It can be yours. It is a free gift he offers anyone. For those of you who have received that, the question is simple. Will you share it? Will you share it with others? Who is the Cleopas that God has placed on your path right now? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're so grateful for your word. How it can penetrate into our hearts. It's not just a book with some morals, but it is life and it brings us face to face with you. And so I don't know what you've shown individuals in this room today. That's part of the mystery of it all. But I do pray that you would show them that you love them. That this whole story Though it is about you, it is also about you inviting us into it. And so if there's someone here who has open eyes and a burning heart right now, would they give their lives to you? Would they extend their hand, invite you in, knowing that you stand at the door and knock? For those of us who have done that, Lord, it's a good reminder here. We are called to share this good news with others. Help us to have the courage to do that, not in some forced way, manipulative way, but in the way you did it, just in the natural rhythms of our lives. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to learn from Jesus today, how to be like Jesus. We ask that you help us do that. And now as we sing this song, it's a song of declaration of what redemption really is, of what Jesus has accomplished. We sing it with full hearts. We sing it with joy. We declare our faith unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.